Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. So I want to ask you, if you would, to take your Bibles today and open them with me to two passages of Scripture. The first is in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the fourth book of the Bible, Numbers chapter 13. Put a pen or something there to hold your spot, and then turn over to the New Testament to the book of James, James chapter 1. So two passages of Scripture for our time together here this morning. If you don't have your Bible with you today, maybe you're new to church or new to the Scripture, or maybe you just forgot it in the car or something on the way in, the words will be here on the screen in just a moment. We are so thrilled that you are here this morning to worship with us. Church family, I want to encourage you uh, to be also in the context of our time of worship together to also be remembering many of our people who are now out of town. We've had numerous students uh, be a part of our church family here over the past semester and past year. And while we have some local students who live here and are here all throughout the summer, we also have many who have now gone home for the summer. So I want to encourage you as a family, uh, let's be praying for them while they are away, praying for their safety and protection, but also praying spiritually for their protection, that this summer would be a time for them to grow closer to the Lord, and uh, we'll look forward to hopefully fellowshipping with them in the fall when they return. Well, over the last few weeks, we've been in a sermon series called Unhindered, and we're looking at what it means to live a life of victory. Uh, In fact, specifically, I'm reminded this morning that God offers the gift of eternal life to every single person who will believe. To every person who admits their sin, believes in Jesus Christ, that he died and rose again, and confesses him as Lord, the Bible says that eternal life, salvation, is a gift that God offers that can only be received by faith. Oftentimes you ask someone, well, are you a Christian? They will say, well, yeah, I've been in church so long, or my grandmother was very religious, or yeah, you know, I went to Bible school growing up and all those things. But when they say that, they're often referring to religious actions. They're looking at church attendance, or they're looking at their, their, their ancestry, if you will, their heritage, and they're saying, I am a Christian based upon these things. But the truth of the matter is, you do not become a Christian until you personally, by faith, believe in Jesus Christ as you your Lord and Savior. And at that moment, you experience the amazing gift called the gift of salvation, otherwise known as the gift of eternal life, to know that you've been rescued from your sins and to know that you will live with the Lord Jesus Christ for all of eternity. That is a wonderful, wonderful blessing. But here's a simple reality. While we can each experience a gift of eternal life by faith, That does not mean that every person who experienced the gift of eternal life is walking in the abundant life that Christ came to give. We might experience the gift of salvation, and yet, if we're living our life in doubt, and if we're living our life overwhelmed with the circumstances and the trials around us, the fact of the matter is, we can live our life in great defeat and in great disappointment and even great despair along the way. That phrase, unhindered, is a phrase that maybe you've thought of before. We all can understand what it means to be hindered in something. I would anticipate that every single one of us here could express some sort of thing that they felt hindered from experiencing or accomplishing. Most every one of us here could say, I wanted to do this, but I was hindered from doing so. It was my desire to go to that location, to be at that meeting, to have that job, 
but I was hindered, I was deterred, I was prevented from doing so. In fact, that would be the same exact phrase that the Apostle Paul would use in Galatians chapter 5 as he would look at the church and he would recognize there are some things that can hinder us from living for the Lord. There are some things that can hinder us from experiencing all that God is calling us to. Galatians chapter 5, verse 7, the Bible tells the, the Apostle Paul looked at the Christians in the regions of Galatia, and he made this statement. He says, you were running well, you were doing right, you were honoring God, you were living for the Lord, your faith was strong, it was vibrant, but something happened. The next statement says this, who hindered you from obeying the truth? In other words, you were doing great as you were living for the Lord, and there was such hope, and there was such excitement, and such optimism about what you were doing as you were running well for the Lord, but something happened along the way that was a distraction. Something happened that hindered you from the life that God was calling you to live. The last two weeks, we've seen two of those hindrances, and specifically, we noticed that the hindrance of rejecting and disobeying God's word will rid us every single time of the victorious life that Christ has called us to. Last week, we saw how conflicts and division with other people will also prevent us and hinder us from being the person that God wants us to be. Today in the book of James, we come to a third hindrance, and frankly, it's one that I believe every single one of us can connect to, we can all relate with, and that is the hindrance of doubt. The hindrance of doubt. Can you say the word doubt? Man, we all know what doubt is, don't we? We've been there, we've experienced it, we've walked in it, and maybe you came here today even with those feelings and those thoughts of doubt in your mind. I believe that God today wants to show us how that doubt is influencing our lives and hindering us from doing what God has called us to do. But I also believe in our time together, God will show us his prescription for what we are to do so that we can walk forward in faith and in victory and not be overwhelmed with the doubt that consumes our minds today. I want to ask you if you're able to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Here's what we're going to do today. We're going to read James chapter 1 verses 5 through 8 and then I'm going to pray and we'll go into the message together. But as you are seated, flick back over to Numbers 13 and Numbers 14 and from there, we're going to study those passages this morning. Here's what the Bible says. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of who? Of God, who gives to you all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any what? Doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word, and we understand that this is your word, and therefore it has authority in our lives. God, I pray today that you would rid our hearts and minds of any distractions or hindrances, and God, that we would truly hear from you. Father, we can all relate to the reality of doubt over various situations and things in our life. And Father, while we might at times doubt ourselves, I pray that we would never doubt you. And so God, where there are those emotions and thoughts and feelings of doubt, I pray God today that you would completely destroy them, completely remove them through the truth of your word. 
Show us, Lord, how you want us to grow. Show us, Lord, how you want us to change. And we will give you alone the glory for it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. The hindrance of doubt. There is no question about it. Every single one of us can understand what doubt is because we've all experienced it before. It might be doubt in ourselves. It might be doubt in some situation. It might be doubt in some outcome. And it might even be doubt as it relates to things of God. But we can all relate to the topic of doubt. James chapter 1, as we've read this morning, frankly, is one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. In fact, uh, through the years of, of my life especially, in James chapter 1, um, this chapter has been a great source of encouragement to me. When I've gone through difficulties and circumstances, the, the cha- James chapter 1 has been a great place of encouragement as well as at times a place of conviction. I would suggest to you as a pastor uh, for, for many years now and have, have counseled a lot of individuals, I don't know if there's a single chapter in the Bible that I have referred to more than James chapter 1. James chapter 1 starts out in verses 1 through 4 with an understanding of the fact that in life we all face trials and difficulties. If you agree with that statement, would you say, "Uh uh-huh? All right, you've been there before too, right? We all face these trials, these difficulties, adversities at different seasons and different situations. That's verses 1 through 4. And then by the time you pick up later on down in the chapter, verses 12 and following, we pick it up again, this theme of trials and difficulties and how to respond and how God's working them together for his glory and for our good. And we we see all these, these teachings about dealing with difficulties. But in the midst of these teachings about difficulties, God, with four verses, verses 5 through 9, gives us a powerful word of promise. And that word is this. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Now think of that for just a moment. God in that, chat, that verse gave no condition to who all could ask God for wisdom. Literally, I mean, man, woman, boy, girl, it doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter your nationality, doesn't matter what language you speak. If anybody asks of God, for anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. So he gave no limitation to who could ask. And he gave no limitation to what you could ask for wisdom about. He didn't limit the subject matter. So, 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 so yeah, hey, I need wisdom in my business decision. Ask God. I need wisdom in my marriage. Ask God. I need wisdom in this situation with someone that, you know, that our relationship is strained and things are difficult. Ask God for wisdom in those things. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally, generously, without reproach. That is an incredible promise. But right on the heels of that promise, God's saying, I'm going to give wisdom to those who ask. He gives us one interesting promise condition. And what does he say in verse 6? He says, but if you're going to ask, you must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. In other words, when we talk to God and we come to God and we ask of God, we're to come without any doubting. We must pray in faith, trusting completely in God. And what is faith? Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 tells us, Faith, in verse 6, was hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. Verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. 
So when we pray, we pray in faith, not doubting, not, not wondering, is God big enough to handle this? Does God know what he's doing? Is God going to work all things together for his glory and for my good? We're not doubting whether God is able. We're believing in faith that he is able and will. Warren Wiersbe says it this way, the greatest enemy to answered prayer is unbelief. The greatest enemy to answered prayer is unbelief. So maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, pastor, how in the world can I pray without any doubt? How in the world can I live without any doubt? It kind of sounds impossible, doesn't it? Because we all face doubt at different phases and phases and different seasons. Maybe you're wondering, how can I pray without doubt when I don't know the outcome? How can I pray without doubt when everything in front of me seems so contradictory, perhaps to God's word? How can I live without doubt when I don't even know what the rest of the day holds, much less tomorrow and beyond? Well, this morning, I don't have every answer to every question, but I do believe God has much to teach us about the hindrance of doubt and how we can overcome it here today. Turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 13 in the Old Testament, and we're going to see an illustration of God's people when they doubted him. And I believe from it, God's going to teach us some powerful things that we need to receive, we need to understand here this morning. Now, the first thing I want us to see this morning is very simple, and that is the problems with doubt. The problems with doubt. Doubt brings certain problems in our life. Now, to be clear, there are some things perhaps about doubt that could actually be positive. For example, if there's a presence of doubt in your life, it can help keep you humble. And so humility is a good thing, right? Uh, if you have doubt in your life, it can also help you at times, help me at times, to realize our need for help, which can cause us to, to lean upon others. It can cause ultimately, hopefully, to rely upon God because we need his help. Also, if we have doubt in certain areas, it may cause us to be more intentional and more deliberate about our planning and our preparation and going the extra mile so that we are confident about a subject matter or something like that. But by far and large, every time we see doubt demonstrated in Scripture, we see it in a very negative way. In fact, we see it in the light of the fact that it's usually completely opposed to the thing that God is calling his people to. And so as Numbers chapter 13 begins to unfold for us, it shows us this incredible list of problems with doubt. Now, as you turn to Numbers, now let me remind you, and I'll just confess here today, I realize that the book of Numbers is probably one of the most often forgot books in the entire Bible. If you agree with that, would you say amen? amen. Very good. I, I, most of us don't think a lot about the book of Numbers. If I were to do a survey from the entire church and say, tell me, what is your favorite book of the Bible? I would be shocked if anybody said the book of Numbers was their favorite. Now, it could happen. It's just not likely uh, the case. Number, the book of Numbers is a book that uh, tends to be forgotten sometimes in Christian settings. Now, I have to confess to you that uh, it's been a while since I have studied the book of Numbers intently. In fact, I managed to go through undergrad and master's degree stuff, and I don't know that I ever did like an intensive study on the book of Numbers. And so God has a sense of humor. At the end of last year, uh, Brother Chris Smith and Miss Mandy and myself, we, we knew that we were going to Nicaragua in February on a vision trip before our team goes here in August. And so at the end of last year, I had spoken with the missionary there, and, and I knew that my role in Nicaragua was to, to do a pastor's training. I was going to be training pastors uh, for four different days. And so I had asked him at the end of last year, 
is there anything specific that you want me to talk about? And he said, absolutely not. Whatever God lays on your heart, I know it will be an encouragement to these men. And, you know, here's kind of their background. And, 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 and it was awesome. I was like, man, that is great. He said, whatever is hot on your heart, preach it and share it. I said, that, sound, that sounds great for me. So, so I, I liked that. I felt comfortable with that. In January, he and I finally got to talk again for, for the first time in a little bit. And, and as we talked, he said, Pastor Matt, there's been a change of plans. And I said, okay, what's the change of plans? He said, well, uh, the last week that I was there in December, we talked with all the pastors, and all the pastors really felt like they needed to grow in their understanding of the Old Testament. I said, okay, that sounds great. I said, so what are you doing? He said, we're literally going book by book through the Old Testament, and so you're up to teach three books of the Old Testament. I said, that's awesome. What books? He said, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. <laughs> I said, well, that'll bless you, Don. We're no longer going to support you. No, I'm kidding. No, no, no. It was awesome for me because it allowed it a challenge. It was it was great. It was the most challenging thing I've studied probably in the past five years. It was excellent. The book of Numbers gets its name because in the book there are two different numberings of God's people. Now listen very very carefully. The book of Numbers tells us the history of the Israelites as they were being released from Egypt and then were going eventually to the Promised Land. The book of Numbers records, ultimately, their wanderings in the wilderness for 40 years before they were going to the Promised Land. But it gets its name for two different numberings. In the beginning of the book, God gives us a numbering of every person of the Israelites that were removed from Egypt. These are the individuals who had served as slaves in Egypt. Uh, they were treated less than in Egypt, and God released them to go to the promised land. So every single person is counted at the book of Numbers. Every single person received the promise of God, I'm taking you to the promised land. Every single person had the promise of God, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to be with you every step of the way. Just go in faith. Be obedient. This is my promise to you. But sadly, by the time you get to chapters 23 through 26 of the book of Numbers, there's a second numbering. And that second numbering isn't the numbering of every Israelite who received the promise. It's instead the numbering of the few Israelites who would experience the promise because of their faith and obedience. The first promise was to say, hey, I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take you. But unfortunately, by the time we get to the end of the book of Numbers, we see that only a small minority were actually going to enter the promised land because of the actions that had taken place between the first and the second numbering. Well, what happened? How do we go from millions receiving the promise to thousands actually seeing it fulfilled? We see the answer in Numbers chapter 13. In chapter 14. Now, I want to ask you, if you have your Bibles open today, the words will be here on the screen in front of you. I'm going to kind of take just a few snapshots from these chapters to help us get a full picture of what took place. I won't read every single verse, surely, for time's sake this morning. So look with me in Numbers chapter 13, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm going to give to the sons of Israel. And you shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord, all of the men who were heads of the sons of Israel. Now look down to verse 17. When Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, Go up there into the Negev, then go up into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether there are few or many. How was the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? How are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? 
How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort to get some of the fruit of the land. Now, the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. So what did the spies do? They went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rahab at Lebo Hamath. Now skip down to verse 25. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Now stop for just a moment. Let me summarize what is happening in this moment. Remember the story of the Israelites. Because of their disobedience to God, they served for many years as slaves in Egypt. And God raised up a mighty leader by the name of Moses. Now, Moses wasn't mighty because of his own strength. He was mighty because God simply chose him, and God was working in and through him. And so God raised up Moses to go to Pharaoh, the most wicked leader of the day, and say, God says, let my people go. Moses did that. Pharaoh didn't want to hear it. And so God began to bring a series of plagues against Pharaoh and the Egyptians in order that he would get his people released from Egypt. So plague after plague after plague came against the Egyptians. And finally, Pharaoh came to Moses and said, please go. You and all the Israelites, take whatever you need. Get out of here as quickly as you can. We can't stand the, the plagues anymore. We can't stand the, the terror anymore. Please go. And so the Israelites began to leave Egypt and they began to make their way through the wilderness. They weren't just going through the wilderness. They were going to a land that God promised them. God said, I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. I'm taking you to a new place. I'm taking you to a place where the land is so productive and the land is so fertile. Literally, it's flowing with milk and honey. I'm taking you to a place that's so beautiful and so wonderful, the grapes are larger than you've ever seen before. I'm taking you to a place where massive cities are already formed. I am giving you cities that you have not even labored for. All you got to do is trust me and obey. All you got to do is move forward in faith. All you got to do is follow my plan and believe my I promise. The Israelites, in the midst of their wandering, they begin to eventually kind themselves at the Red Sea. And of course, by now, the Israelites are kind of hemmed in at the Red Sea. And by now, Pharaoh is, is resenting the fact that he let them go. And so Pharaoh hardens his heart and he tells all his Egyptian army, let's go get them. We can't live without them. We got to have them working for us as slaves. And so they began to pursue after the Israelites. And as God would have it, God parted the Red Sea and the Israelites crossed that Red Sea on dry land. And the Bible tells us that Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they chased after them. And when they got into the bottom of that sea where God was holding up the water, when they got into the bottom of that sea, God withdrew his hand and the waters of the Red Sea came upon them and drowned Pharaoh and his entire army. What I'm saying to you is that the Israelites had every evidence that God was with them. The Israelites had every sign from God that he was with them, that he would take care of them, that he would provide for them, that he would bless them. Much like in our own lives today, they had every evidence that God had seen them through every step along the way. And now we come to Numbers 13, where we see the people sending out spies into the land. Now think for just a moment. Just in the scriptures of verse 1, telling us that there were spies that went out into the land, 
we kind of get the hint immediately that there was some trouble brewing. And the reason why we get this hint is because in Deuteronomy chapter 1, we learn that it was actually the people who wanted to send out spies into the land. God had told them about the land. He promised them what it was going to be like. He described it to them as a land flowing with milk and honey. He even described the people in the cities that were there. But in Deuteronomy chapter 1, the people come against Moses and say, Moses, in essence, we want to see it for ourselves. God's word's not enough. We got to check this out for ourselves. So would you please send some of us, let us go ahead to see for ourselves whether or not the land is what God says it is. Moses talks to God, Numbers chapter 13, verse 1, God says, all right, Moses, get 12 spies, send them out into the land. The spies go out into the land. They travel throughout the land for 40 days. Most experts agree that they probably spanned about 500 miles in 40 days. In fact, they even got some of the grapes from the land. And they came back to bring a report to the people. It's there that we see our first observation. We're going to make four quick observations about doubt and then the prescription for it. Number one, doubt is common. Doubt is common. The Bible tells us that there were 12 spies who went throughout the land of Israel, but I want you to consider for just a moment in verse 28 what happened. Now, the spies came back and said, listen, what God said about the land is true. In fact, verse 27, they said, it certainly does flow with milk and honey. Just like God said, there are massive cities and and it's amazing. The land is productive and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's grand. In other words, we didn't see anything that God hadn't already told us. Verse 28, listen to this statement. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified. They're surrounded by walls and are very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country and the Canaanites are living by the sea by the side of the Jordan. You can kind of get the impression that people are getting stirred up. They're getting afraid. Verse 30, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and possess it for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him, the other 10 spies, we are not able to go up against the people for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report for the land which they had spied out saying, the land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak and part of the Nephilim, And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. The first thing we see about doubt is that doubt is common. In the midst of the 12 men that went out, they began to identify and look at the fruit and look at the land and look at the people and look at the cities. And there was Joshua and Caleb, and they said, listen, God is with us. It's just like he said, let's go claim it by victory. Let's go claim it in faith. But there were 10 who came back and said, we're going to die. There were 10 who came back and said, man, the cities are fortified. There's walls and the people are enormous. We were like grasshoppers in our own sight. Do you kind of hear what's happening here? What's happening here is this. They are beginning to live and function by sight. Now think of this for a moment. Their mission was simply to go 
to observe and to bring back a report. Go check out the land, see what it's like, and come back and give a report. They were never commissioned to go and make a decision. You know why? Because God had already decided. God had already said, this is the land, this is the spot, this is the place, just go in faith. But they came back and said, and they brought this negative report, we are all going to die. Why? Because doubt is common. Anytime we begin to walk by sight instead of by faith, we begin to have our hearts filled with doubt. We can't make it. We can't do it. We're going to die. There's no hope. There's no joy. There's no peace. It's very common, isn't it? I was reminded of that in my own life this past fall in somewhat lighthearted and humorous way, but it's a true story. Heather and I this past fall were invited to go to a conference, and it was in a very nice location. In fact, uh, during the daytime, basically, I was in conferences with pastors, and then the evening we would have kind of a nice meal together uh, and time together. And then on the last day of the conference, it was a full day of free time. And this particular conference happened to be in Mexico. It was a really nice place at a nice resort, and it was a wonderful time. And So the last day we were there, we had a day of free time. And so during the morning time, we went out and we shopped and we kind of saw the area a little bit. And when we got back to the resort in the afternoon, Heather noticed something that she wanted to try that she'd never done before. Heather wanted to go paddle boarding. Anybody know what a paddle board is? Yeah, it's one of those boards that you get out in the water and you're basically just standing on this thing and you got a little thing they call a paddle, right? It's like the size of a toothpick when you're in the middle of the ocean, but that's what it's for. And so Heather's like, I, I'd like to go paddle boarding. And I thought to myself, I would like to too in a bathtub or something, you know, like something small or a lake that's calm, not in the ocean. Now, a little, little background confession of me. Um, some people are great swimmers. Heather, when she, I'm not joking, I think when she was born, like the very next day she could swim. Like she is an excellent, excellent swimmer. But I am not. I swim like a redneck trying not to drown, Pastor Terry. That's just how it is, okay? I, I did not know how to swim until I was in seventh grade. I was at a swimming party with my basketball team, and my coach pushed me in the deep end and said, nobody help him. That's how I learned to swim. Today, they call that abuse, okay? At, at, at that point, it was just an initiation. That's just how it is. You're going to learn how to swim today. No further. And so I learned how to float and not drown. That's, a, that's about how it works. And so... We're hanging out, and Heather wants to be on the paddleboard, and, not, and I'm like, I'm not going to let my wife do this alone. So sure enough, we get on like, these paddle boards, and these, these little guys kind of instruct us and tell us what to do. And, and I mean, I'm still like asking questions, and Heather's off. You know, she's gone. And so finally, I, I get up on this board, and, you know, I'm trying to steady my weight and everything, and I, I start moving a little bit, and I'm moving a little bit. And when I was in the shallow waters, I was actually doing okay. I could see the bottom. I could see the sand. And it was crystal clear and beautiful and wonderful. And it was a wonderful experience for 30 seconds. And so I'm, I'm there. I'm making my way. And finally, I'm, I'm out past the buoys, you know. And I'm getting out into the deep of the ocean. And, I mean, it's getting deep and it's getting darker. I can't see the bottom anymore. And I'm starting to realize, you know what? The lifeguards are, they're a long ways away at this point. There's some boats up in the distance, and so every time one of those boats would go by, you know, you're just, you're, I'm praying, you know, I'm, I'm growing in faith is what I'm doing, and, and I'm moving along, and, and, and honestly, I kind of manned up, you know, like, psych myself up, you got this, you're going to be fine, you can do this, be a man, you got this, dude, let's go, and so I'm psyching myself up, and I'm going, and all of a sudden, I see a fish come by. I'm like, oh, that's cute, that's nice, that's nice, and I'm going, and all of a sudden, I saw another fish coming. 
This fish looks strangely familiar. It wasn't big. It wasn't like jaws or anything like that. But it was, it was like a, a baby shark. It was two to three feet. And that thing went underneath me. I'm telling you, I was convinced it was a missile coming to eat me, you know. And it goes on. But when that thing passed, all of a sudden these questions started filling my mind. Because my mentality growing up in Alabama, or my mentality even being around the mountains of Virginia is, if there's a baby, there's likely a mama. That's exactly right. And so I was moving pretty good and got a good pace, and I was growing in my confidence. And all of a sudden, when I saw that shark come by, I began to process in my mind. I began to think by sight, oh, my goodness, I bet Orca, I mean, Shamu, Jaws herself is right around the corner. And so I'm moving pretty good, and all of a sudden, I'm, I'm slowing down. And at that point, every ripple of water that came over that paddleboard felt like a monstrous wave. Now, my situation hadn't changed at all, but you know what had changed? My perception. I, I didn't have that confidence that I had 10 minutes ago. I didn't have that confidence that I had when I was in the shallow water. I didn't have that confidence I had when I could see the bottom and see the end result and know that it wasn't that far down. But in that moment, I was walking by sight. And in walking by sight, all these doubts began to creep in. It wasn't a matter of time before I was turning back and I was retreat, retreat, retreat. Heather can have the sharks, not me, okay? I was done. The reality is in that simple illustration, so often in our life, we're moving forward and we're honoring God. We're doing what God wants us to do. And then we begin to allow all these things to creep in. We begin to live by sight instead of by faith. And when we walk by sight, every hill becomes an insurmountable mountain. Instead, if we would simply walk by faith, we would find that every insurmountable mountain will be completely removed. We naturally walk by sight. But spiritually, we must learn to walk by faith. And we're not alone in the struggle. All throughout the Bible, we read of great heroes of the faith. But the more you look at their life, the more you begin to realize they too struggle with doubt. Abraham, the father of many nations, what a man of great faith. We tend to forget that he also had a moment of doubt and disbelief. And when he did, he turned to his wife's handmaid. And he tried to achieve God's plan another way. We remember Moses, as we read about here in this passage, man, what a man of great faith. He's mentioned in the great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. What a great man. And yet we tend to forget that when God first called him because of his doubt and disbelief, he made every excuse possible to God. We remember David and, and the giant Goliath, and we remember how he fell. Oh, what a man of great faith. But we tend to forget that in that same moment of his great faith, the entire army, the mighty men of Israel, and even the king, King Saul, were cowered in fear. We tend to forget those moments of doubt. I'm reminded of the illustration of Peter. Even those that were walking with Jesus during his earthly life and ministry, I'm reminded of, the, of, of Peter. Do you remember the story when the Bible tells us that Jesus told the disciples to get into the boat, go to the other side? It's nighttime, the storm's coming, it's crashing against the boat, and Jesus comes walking out to them on water. And literally, they're afraid, oh my goodness, it's Casper the ghost. No, they're terrified in that moment. And Jesus says, guys, be of courage, don't be afraid, it's me. And Peter said, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come to you on the water. So Jesus said, Peter, come. Man, we got that scene as, as Peter, I mean, what faith and what boldness. Peter throws those feet over the edge of that boat, and he focuses, focuses his eyes on Jesus, and he begins to walk on water. Amazing. He's focused on Jesus, man, he's moving. He's moving, but suddenly, amen, 
in an instant, he began to focus on the storm around him and the waves that were crashing and the wind that was blowing in his face. He began to focus on the storm. And when he took his eyes off of Jesus, the Bible says he began to sink into the water and he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus reached down and he pulled him up. But then he gave him a loving rebuke. He said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Isn't that like us so often in our life? I'm reminded that doubt is common. But the second thing we see in this pastor scripture is that doubt is contagious. Notice the statement in verse 1. This should have been a time of celebration. Guys, the land is just like God says it is. Everything that God said about it is true. we got to go forward and claim it. But listen to verse 1. What happened? All the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. This should have been a time of rejoicing and celebration that God's word is true and that he would, by faith, fulfill his promises. But instead, it was a time of sadness, a time of weeping, a time of great grief. Because the people in this moment of walking by sight, they concluded the outcome, and in their discouragement, it spread to all sorts of things. Please understand, negative words of doubt and criticism always have a way of spreading. Things quickly spread from doubt to disappointment to discouragement and then to complete despair. That's where they're at. That can happen in a family. That can happen in the life of the church. It can happen because doubt is contagious. A few weeks ago, I was on a soccer field coaching my uh, 10 and 11-year-old soccer team. Right now, I'm coach, the Lord's worked it out where I'm coaching two teams. It's a, it's a unique opportunity, but I'm coaching 10 and 11-year-olds. And we, we came to our game, and, and there's a particular player on our team that um, he's learning and he's growing, but, but, but his attitude is not always the best. And the game was starting, and at the time, he was my only substitute to go into the game at some point. And so we're playing the game. In the first five minutes of the game... The other team was attacking us big time. I mean, they were getting all kinds of shots on goal, uh, which means if you're, not new to, if you're new to soccer, that just means they were on our side of the field and they had a whole bunch of opportunities to score. And this little guy beside me, man, he was just like, Pastor Matt, uh, not, not Pastor Matt, Coach Matt, come at you. We're going to lose. We're gonna, this is bad. This is really bad, Coach Matt. We're going to lose. And I looked at him. I was like, we're like a few minutes into the game, dude. Like, what are you talking? And, and he just kept on, we're, we're going to lose. We're going to lose. And I said, why don't, you, why don't you stand close to me? I want you to do your best not to talk negatively while we're cheering for our team. Okay. We stayed close to me for a few minutes. About that time, we had two players that showed up late. And so I told them, hey, I need you to stretch. I want you to warm up a little bit. I'll put you in the game in a little bit. And in the midst of coaching, I kind of lost track of this little guy. And so a few minutes later, I look over and I begin to realize all three of them are now saying, we're going to lose. We're gonna, this other team is killing us. The other team hadn't even scored yet. We're literally at this point like seven minutes into the game. What do you mean? We got a whole another 53 minutes to go. We're not going to lose this thing. And as I listened to them, I looked at them finally, and maybe I shouldn't have done it, but I told them this. I said, do you want to play soccer? And they were like, yeah, absolutely. I said, here's what I want you to do. I am not going to put you into the game until you do something for me, okay? I turned to the first little guy. I want you to count every good pass that we make. Every time we have a good pass to a teammate, I want you to count it for me. All right, you next little negative guy, here's what I want you to do. Every time our defenders 
kick the ball away from the middle of the field, anywhere to the outside. I want you to count it for me. And third little negative guy, I want you to tell me every time we block a shot. Why was I doing that? Because I wanted them in that moment to turn their attention to the things that we were doing right and the things that we were doing well. And so five minutes later, I asked them, how many, how many? And they were going to tell me, and then I began to put them in. And it was amazing how their mindset changed to, we're going to lose, we're going to lose to finally thinking, we might win this thing. What's the outcome? We lost in the last minute of the game, but that's beside the point, okay? <laughs> doubt is contagious. And so when we begin to doubt the things of God, it's one thing when we're talking about a wreck soccer game, but when it comes to the things of God, the truth of God's word, the promises that he's given, friend, we can't doubt those things. And as we share, it will be contagious. Third thing I want you to see quickly, doubt is controlling. The problem with doubt is that it is never just a thought or a perspective. It's not just what the little guy is saying on the sidelines. Doubt will certainly influence and impact our actions. That's why James said, the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea. He's driven and tossed by the wind. There is nothing more uncertain, more unstable, or unpredictable than a wave in the middle of a storm. Notice what happened to their actions in Numbers chapter 14. The people weep that night. Verse 2, all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. They're so consumed with their doubt. They're so consumed with their doubt that they are now living by, by sight and not by faith. They determine the outcome. We're going to die. And then they say, you know what? I know we were slaves in Egypt, but life was sure better in Egypt than it is in this promised land that God supposedly is going to give us. In fact, they determine so clearly they're going to die that now they're saying, God brought us out of Egypt to kill us in the wilderness. And I'm looking at these guys and I'm like, no, dummy, that's not it. God promised you the promised land. God's wanting to take you there. He's promising, and you're disbelieving. And as a result of that, there will be consequences, but it's not God's fault. Their doubt was so consuming them that it began to control their actions. So much so that in Numbers chapter 14, verse 10, when Moses and Aaron fell on their faces, the Bible says they grieved openly and they begged the people don't think that way. Don't go back to Egypt. Don't. That's foolish talk. The Bible says in Numbers chapter 14, verse 10, but all the congregation said to stone them with stones. What in the world? This is Moses and Aaron. These are the guys that love you. These are the guys that have led you. These are the guys who have prayed for you. These are the guys that have done nothing but tell you the things that God was leading you to do. And yet they had such a rage against Moses and Aaron. Matthew Henry said it this way, those who hate to be reformed hate those who would reform them and often count them their enemies because they tell them the truth. I think what we see from their actions is this, that when doubt consumes our thoughts, our actions are sure to follow, isn't it? Fourth thing about doubt is this, doubt is costly. Doubt is costly. See, the biggest problem with doubt is not what it does to us, but what it keeps us from doing. Think of that for just a moment. 
The biggest problem with doubt is not what it does to us, but what it keeps us from doing. The Israelites thought it was optional. They could take it or leave it. They could do what God wanted them to do or not, and there would be no serious repercussions. They could go their own way. After all, hey, they're their own people. God doesn't really care. We can do what we want to do. It's amazing how much time has passed and how little our mindsets have changed. But notice verse 11 and then verses 22 through 24, how God responds and speaks of the cost of doubt. The Lord said to Moses, How long would this people spurn me, and how long would they not believe me, despite all these signs which I have performed in their midst? Look at verses 22 through 24. Moses intercedes and looks at God and says, God, I know that the people have been doubtful. I know they've not believed in you. And God begins to speak about the the judgment of that, the consequences of that. And Moses intercedes and says, God, don't destroy them all. And God says, I won't destroy them all, but there's certainly cost. Verse 22 through 24 Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet they have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice. They shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurn me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring to the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. God says there's three costs for their doubt. Number one, all of the older generation, all of the older generation that has doubted me and disbelieved me, all of the older generation, they will die before they enter the promise, before the families and the younger people enter the promised land. Number two, the Israelites will now wander in the wilderness for 40 years, one year for every day that the spies were looking at the land. But then the third, the third was simply that the spies that came back and brought the negative report, they were judged immediately, and you begin to read about that in the following chapters. Pastor, what are you saying? I'm saying that doubt is costly because of what it hinders us from doing. Final thing I want us to see is this, that is the prescription for doubt. So what are we to do with that? Oh, it's easy to identify, yes, I've had doubts. It's easy to identify, yes, it's difficult sometimes to trust God in this. It's difficult to trust the promises of God. What is God's prescription for doubt? Well, sadly, in Numbers 13 and 14, We don't see God give a prescription to them. The reason why is because God had already given it to them, and they rejected it. They went their own way, did their own thing, and God said, the prescription's still the same, that's it. And when they refused it, he offered nothing else. What is God's prescription today for us with our doubt? How can we overcome the doubts that may flood our mind, the disbelief that may come as a result? I believe there is only one way. To overcome doubt. It's not found in psyching ourselves up. You got this, you can do it. It's not found in walking by sight because eventually you're going to find yourself in the deep where you can't see so clearly. There's only one way, one key. With the world brings all of its negative voices and negative influences that war against us, God assures us of one key to overcoming our doubt, and that key is faith. 1 John chapter 5 verse, 14, or 5 verse 4 says it this way. This is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? Our, say it with me, faith. And by the way, how do we come to this faith? Is it faith in ourselves? No. Is it faith in what we see? No. Romans chapter 10, 17 says it this way. So faith comes from what? Hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. 
In other words, we receive this faith and we grow in this faith and we are strengthened in this faith through one way. It is through God's word. There is no shortcut. There is no substitute. There is no other offer. This is God's prescription for us. Once we understand what God has done in the past, what he has promised for us in the present, and we can expect from him in the future, it is then that we are able to act in faith instead of doubt. We must get to God's word. Man, our doubt can rob us of joy and it can rob us of peace. Our doubt can hinder us from saying yes to the Lord. It can hinder us from being obedient. But I am telling you this morning, if we will get back to God's word and let God's word be the guide and let God's word be the voice that leads us, if we'll let God's word be the thing that governs our life, I'm telling you, we will find joy, we will find peace, we will find hope, we will find purpose, we'll find truth, we'll find all these things and more because God says, here is my prescription, here's how you overcome those doubts. You get in my word and listen to my voice, get my perspective, get my plan, and quit seeking your own ways. And I I get, it's a struggle, right? It's a challenge at times when we're walking by sight. A few years ago, three, four, three and a half years ago, when, when our family was in Christiansburg and we were, we were ministering there, and, and I was asked, would you pray about the possibility whether God could be leading you here? I, I said no initially. And then when I was asked about it, here's the bottom line answer. It's because I was walking by sight. I didn't see it. I, I saw this and I saw that and I saw this and I saw that. I didn't see it. It wasn't until I really began to pray, it wasn't until I really began to get in God's word that God began to say, Matthew, I'm doing something here. It wasn't until February 2nd, 2016, reading God's word, I could literally take you to the place of of the passage and even to the place where I was reading that day. And I'm telling you that day, God convicted me and he said, Matthew, quit doubting and quit walking by sight. I am doing this. I am working in this way. I have called you. Go, be obedient. I'm going to bless and I'm going to provide and I'm going to protect and I'm going to do these things. And I'm telling you, it wasn't until I got in God's word that I began to understand what God was doing. And honestly, it wasn't until I got in God's word that I had the faith to trust what he was doing. Pastor, what are you saying? I'm saying to you this morning that we naturally walk by sight, but God is calling us to walk by faith. But that faith comes by hearing the word of God. So my question for you this morning is this. Are you willing to walk by faith and not by sight? Are you content to keep living in the doubts, spinning your wheels, dealing with the discouragement, I mean, think of the agony that these Israelites were in all because they chose to doubt God and his promises. This should have been cause for celebration. But instead, it was cause for weeping and grief simply because they would not trust God and obey. And I'm convinced, sadly, many believers We think that the source of our discouragement and our despair, we think that the source of our frustration 
Frankly, it's all these other things. God did this, God allowed this, when reality is. We simply have refused to get in his word, to trust him, and walk by faith. This morning, maybe you're here today and you would say, Pastor, I'm saved, I'm a believer. If that'd be you, I would question you and I would ask you, are you today struggling with doubt? Whatever it is that you might be doubting that God is calling you to, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, God is worthy of your best. He can be trusted, but don't take my word for it. Take his. Whatever it is, surrender and say yes to him. But secondly, maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor, you know, you talk about this like journey of faith, you know, where you're trusting the Lord and surrendering him. Maybe that's kind of like foreign talk to you. Maybe you don't really know what that means. I would encourage you this morning, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, that journey of faith begins in one simple step. It begins not by good works, not by good intentions. It begins the very moment you recognize that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he rose again just like the Bible says, and you put your faith and your trust in him to be your Lord and Savior. So this morning, that first step of faith for you might simply be to say yes to the Lord to save you. But regardless of whether this is your first step, or maybe today it's your first step in a long time, I believe what God is calling us to do is to quit doubting, look to him, and trust him. Can you bow your heads with me? Father, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for what you're doing in our lives. Thank you for the way that you've spoken to us even today. God, we all can relate to doubt. Lord, I certainly can. Uh, Father, it's easy to talk about maybe doubts that happened years ago, but Lord, even still today, there are things that you convict me to do or things that you call me to do, put upon my heart, and my fleshly first response is often to doubt. God, I, I pray that that would not be the case in our lives. I pray, God, that we would look to you. Our first response would be to look to you. Our first response would be to get in your word. Our first response would be to surrender to you, trusting you. Father, thank you for the way that you're moving. I pray right now that you would be glorified in our time of response. I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.